Welcome, everybody, and this is Release the Adventure, a podcast about adventuring and getting outside and being your best selves. Uh, I'm Brad, and this is... And I'm Sean. And today we have a really special guest um, that really inspired both me and Sean to get out and be active and kind of learn something different about ourselves. Um, and he is Matt Fitzgerald. Can you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah. So I am Matt Fitzgerald, um, coming at you from Oakdale, California. Um, stuck at home like everyone else these days, but uh, <laughs> still still finding ways to release the adventure, as it were. There you go. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so t- tell us a little bit more about how you've been doing with all the virus stuff, because uh, I'm sure a lot of people out there, and myself included, definitely, I've been struggling a lot with motivation and just trying to get out there and find new things to do. What, what have, what have you been up to? Yeah. You know, so I've, I've had, you know, a, a kind of an interesting experience because I, I got sick. Um, let's see. I, so I ran the Atlanta marathon on March 1st. And so five days wow. after I got home, I, I started to feel symptoms. So this is March 6th. Oh, wow. Um, Okay. And I was never able to get tested, but I'm 99% sure, well, we'll call it 95, that it was COVID-19. Um, wow. Holy everything lined up, <laughs> almost everything. I was never too feverish, but like I've, in any case, whatever it was, I've never been so sick for so long. So I was, it was weird yeah. because, you know, obviously it's like if you pay attention to the media or even you're on social media, it's all you hear about now. And, you know, right around the time it exploded. So it it just becomes unavoidable. It changes all of our lives. I became, like I said, sicker than I've ever been in my life. So like, I felt like I was just deep inside it. Um, Mm. uh, And uh, yeah, it was a real drag. Um, So, but it was also made, it just just changed my whole perspective on what was going on. Cause I think, you know, a lot of people, everyone's, everyone's feeling it, but not everyone's sick. Um, Mm -hmm. So like a lot of the stuff I think maybe you were going through a few weeks ago, I'm going through now, like missing restaurants and stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You were definitely more preoccupied with other worries and struggles. Survival. (laughs) Yeah. Just staying safe. (laughs) Crazy. Um, yeah, I saw on your Twitter that you had uh, ran four four miles recently. So I thought, huh, he must have been really sick from suffering or he's recovering for something. And I didn't see that specifically um, that you thought you had COVID. So that that's that is news to me that that you had that. And I'm really happy that you were able to recover, though. I mean, it sounds like it was a really difficult process. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, um, yeah, for me, the main things and you hear this over and over were um dry cough, uh, and, uh, like the breathing restriction. And, you know, when, when you're mm-hmm. very, very aerobically fit, you're going to experience that in a different way than someone who's you know sedentary would, mm-hmm. but it was still a trip, you know, so off, uh, like through parts of it, I wouldn't necessarily feel I was sick unless I tried to move, <laughs> it, but right. I couldn't move. Okay. Uh, like even climbing a flight of stairs, it was like a, coin toss about whether I would faint at the top or not. Cause I just, Oh my God. Yeah. I wasn't like, I couldn't like breathe. Right. Uh, yeah. And that's no, 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 no exaggeration on the whole fainting part. <laughs> yeah. 
No, I, I did. I, I did actually, you know, keel over a few times. Oh, and then the, the cough, cough was probably actually the worst of it. Like I, I coughed so violently, like so often that I, I injured a bunch of ribs. Uh, and then you can imagine how painful coughing is after yeah. your ribs. Yeah. Yeah. I was Gosh. doing everything I could to suppress the coughs and, you know, then, and then I would have, I would have to do something on the phone. I, and I would tell people, I'm going to sound really weird. Like you're going to hear all these grunting noise. <laughs> like that's me trying to suppress coughs and then still feeling yeah. pain. Oh. Like I sounded like I had uh, Tourette syndrome or something, but uh, oh, I got man, through it. Man. Yeah, it was. And the other thing they say about this is like people will start to feel better and then they'll slide backward, which really yeah. messes with your morale. And I had that, that happened to me three times where I, I thought, because oh. you're, you're comparing it to, because everyone's had the flu before or cold. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, once I start to get better, I keep getting better. And that just wasn't, mm -hmm. that's not how this thing works. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've, I've come out the other side. Right. And so like, yeah, I totally feel it. Like, cause I coach athletes, a lot of whom are struggling with motivation right now. Like I couldn't be more motivated <laughs> because <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't do anything for a month. So I, like I'm. I have to kind of hold myself back because I did lose a lot. You know, you can't, right. you have to be cognizant of that. Yeah. Right. Well, I'm COVID glad you're back and healthy. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm glad you're Thank back you. at least yeah. roughly. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I, I ran 20 miles yesterday. Uh, so like I'm, it's actually a bit of an interesting experiment, you know, in, in what uh, you know, exercise physiologists would call detraining. Uh, because I really was at peak fitness when I got sick. And then, you know, clearly, you know, I, I just look at my online training log. I'm like, oh my God, this is carnage. Like, and then, then you just want to, like, for me, it's like a bit of a, you know, because I'm very experienced and I, you know, I, I do have knowledge of, of endurance training. So I want to sort of challenge myself to see how quickly I can get it back. And yeah, that's a lot about hard work, but it's also about being smart and disciplined and like i really want to challenge myself to see if i can pull it off a lot of you know all of, all of these normal race events have been canceled so they're doing a lot of virtual races and i signed up for a virtual mm -hmm. marathon on may 17th and like it you know i know i won't be where i was at the atlanta marathon which is where i think i picked up the bug but i just want yeah i just want to I'm, it's almost like a curiosity thing it's like well how far back can i get in that limited time Right. Yeah. Definitely. It's a super interesting concept. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, in your book, the the eighty twenty, there was a good uh, section of the book about what to do when you're feeling the different types of flat days, and I can just imagine this is this is the worst quote unquote flat day you've ever experienced. You know, it was like a flat month, you could say. So, <laughs> um, getting back to that peak fitness level must have been uh, challenging. Yeah, yeah, and I'm and I'm most certainly not there yet. But you, you're right, you know. Like I'm I'm trying to walk the talk, you know. Like you know, I I do. I am an athlete myself. You know, I write about endurance sports. I coach athletes, but I also do the stuff. And and mm -hmm. you know, I I do practice what I preach. Um, and yeah. yeah, it's funny. Like when you're first starting off, as long as you aren't over aggressive, yeah, like you feel terrible. Like maybe the first few days. But then actually you start to improve. You're almost like a beginner again. Like you, you improve very quickly and you, you're, you're, there's like a little honeymoon phase. 
And I've actually just <laughs> come out the other side of that where I am starting to have flat days. And you know, the, the work I've been doing is catching up with me. It's like the first plateau in that process. And, you know, it just helps to have been there before and, and to kind of know it's coming and to know what it is when it happens and know what to do um, to come out the other side of it and forcing it is not what you do. <laughs> right. For sure. Yeah. Um, well, Matt, can you just tell us a little bit about um, some of the books you've read, some of your background, kind of, I guess, what your life's been, that type of thing sure. that have got you into running and all that kind of game. Yeah. I, I grew up mostly in New Hampshire. Family bounced around a bit when I was very young, but most of my childhood was in uh, New Hampshire. Um, and my dad was running marathons while I was growing up. I think he, I was 11, almost 12 when he did his first one. And, you know, I looked up to my dad like a lot of boys do. And uh, so, and it also, you know, it just kind of, you know, we're talking 1983 here, which is, you know, Running was booming, but it, it it wasn't where it is today. Um, but you know, having my dad do what he was doing, it just made it seem like normal. Uh, so I started running around there. I was a soccer player, but I, like the running really helped me on the soccer field. I was terrible in terms of motor skills, but I've <laughs> you know, there's a lot of running in soccer, and I I, I became like the kid who never got tired. Um, and but you know, I. Uh, I ended up being a lot better at running than I was at, at soccer. So I, I went all in for the running um, and got away from it. I was kind of supposed to run in college, didn't, uh, but then got back into it. I also got the writing from my dad. My dad had published novels by the time I was, I don't know, well, sentient. <laughs> um, and I, I, sure. I developed an interest in, in running when I was young, uh, writing when I was young. And so I had these two passions, the writing and the running, and I didn't necessarily plan to put them together, but it worked out that way. After I moved to California in 1995, a couple of years after college, and just happened to get a job with a startup endurance sports magazine. Um, and that relit the spark because I wasn't really in training or racing at the time, but it got me back into it and got me writing about the stuff. And slowly I kind of developed my own expertise started coaching in 2001 um have written you know i've had jobs with like triathlete magazine and active.com and and the competitor group which did a bunch of endurance magazines but now i'm just kind of a full-time independent operator writing books like the two that you have read and and some others and uh, coaching and i have a business called 8020 endurance which is like just online uh, training resources for runners and triathletes and cyclists and such. And uh, I mean, there was no master plan here, but here I am like really kind of loving the way things have turned out and feeling blessed and wanting to keep it going. That's awesome. Yeah. During, Friendly. during the 80, 20 early on in the book, I remember reading about your childhood and you're saying when you were 11 or 12, you were, you were so excited about running. You had, you had started out with just a mile or two here or there, but by the time you were already 12, you were running six, seven, eight miles at that such a young age. And I just, that just kind of blows my mind because <laughs> as someone who's always avoided running, Brad and I are both um, more so c cyclists and we are runners. Yep. It just blows my mind just as someone who's just always saw running as a chore and 
just as a painful experience, I guess you could say, both mentally and physically, it just blows my mind that you're able to find that passion uh, so early on. Yeah. Well, it's funny, you know, like, you know, I, don't, I don't have kids myself, so I, I, I gather things have changed a lot since, you know, I was growing up, but, and, you know, it also may have been a function of where I grew up, which, you know, which is very rural, but, like, pretty much every kid just had a lot of walking around fitness is, is what I call it. Like, kids were fit just from play and, and sports and lifestyle and so, yeah, I remember, you know, my, my dad ran the Boston Marathon in 1983. Um, and I think it was like the next day was maybe, maybe the, yeah, it was either the next day or the day after I ran six miles. And that was just because that was my dad's standard route. Like he, you know, obviously he did longer runs and marathon training, but like his bread and butter run was this six mile route. So I just went and did that and it was no problem. <laughs> You know, just wow. um, and not because I was like gifted. It was just because I had that walking around fitness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Matt, when I was reading, um, uh, how bad do you want it? Something that kind of popped in my head is: Do you did you know, or at least think about when you started um, writing for that magazine, that you were going to become kind of a expert, Matterfield expert when it comes to sports psychology? Oh no. And, and honestly, I, I, I still don't consider myself an expert. I, I, I mean, I know what I know, but I'm, I'm not the guy who necessarily comes up with stuff. I, I, I view myself as kind of a conduit between the real experts and the masses. Um, okay. Yeah, and that's both on the, you know, because, you know, a lot of it stems from the fact that I am, I am an athlete myself. You know, I, I remain, you know, I still do this stuff. And so I care very much about my own fitness and performance. And as someone who does care, I'm not just going to fo follow just anyone's advice. Right. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. yeah. You know, even like, even forget the training, just even on the diet side, like there's so many, there's so much, it's coming at you from all angles. Like, do it this way, do it that way. And so you have to be, no matter who you are, you, if you care um, about how you feel and perform, you, you have to be selective. You have to choose, you know, who, whose information to trust. And, and for myself, I trust good science and equally, if not more so, um, like real world best practices, like what are, you know, yeah. I want to do what the guy who won the race is doing uh, right. as long as yeah. he's not weird. Like I want to do what most <laughs> of the winners are doing. Um, yeah. As so, long as he's not doing majority. high interval training. Right. Yeah. Well, some <laughs> of that, just no more than 20%, right? Um, right. Exactly. Yeah. So like, only, only, only 20%. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's my role. It's like, I, I try to, to get back to your question, did I see myself, you know, becoming an expert in, in endurance sports psychology, you know, I guess the short answer is I'm not the, but in the, the spirit of your question is like, yeah, I, I've developed a huge interest in it. Um, I'm writing another book, sort of a sequel to how bad you want it now on, on the same topic, but it's just partly because like as an athlete myself, I've, I've learned just how important the mind is. Um, and, and I, you know, I have learned a lot just in trying to get better at the sport myself, be, be, get better results for the athletes I coach. 
And then by extension, the, the folks I write for, like I like what I tell them, I'm not just trying to sell books by delivering a certain message. It's because this is what I do myself. You know, I really, yeah, I really right. believe in it. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, awesome. That's, that's good. Okay. So in case anyone uh, didn't know, Matt's upcoming book is called Running the Dream. One summer, living, training, and racing with a team, world class runners half my age. So, Matt, what was your inspiration for even going out and going onto this journey to Flagstaff, Arizona, considering you were going out to train with Olympic hopefuls and other extremely elite runners that were running 120 plus miles per per week? What was what was that journey like for you? Yeah, I mean, it was sort of you know, well, it wasn't just sort of it, it was fantasy fulfillment, you know. I mean, they've done surveys, you know, like of like third grade boys, and like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And like nine out of 10 want to be professional athletes. Um, right. And so like the, the dream, because I mean, what do you do when you're in the third grade? You play like what are professional mm-hmm. sports? It's like getting paid a lot of money to play. Uh, and so if you if you really develop a big passion for a particular sport, it's easy to have that fantasy. It's like, what? and not even necessarily like going pro or being sponsored, but just having the opportunity to take it all the way. Um, you know, I see this, you know, in the, in the running, like the endurance world, so many athletes, I mean, obviously only, only a very few have enough talent to take a shot at the Olympics, but passion is completely separate. Like you can love running or cycling or triathlon just as much as the pros without having half their talent. And that was kind of me. Like, you know, I, I, I had some talent, but even when I was in high school, you know, I was one of the better runners in my state, but I knew then I wasn't going to the Olympics, but I loved it. And I would fantasize like, you know, like how good could I be? What, how good could I be if I just had, if I could just focus and not necessarily for the rest of my life, but just for a time. Um, and, yeah. and I, so I was 46 years old when just kind of the stars aligned and I actually decided to, to, to make it happen and not, not just for myself, but like, you know, very intentionally to write about it. And because obviously the opportunity that I created for myself is not, not something the masses can do. So I wanted to give others who may have at one point have just wondered, you know, how could, how far could I take this if I really had a chance to take it all the way, um, you know, to, to allow them to live the journey vicariously through me. And that, that was the inspiration. Yeah. Kind of like you're saying a minute ago, being, being a conduit from the experts or the best in the field to, to the masses, even in a, a more physical point rather than, you know, a, a, a writing or researching point. Yeah. It, it was also in a sense, like putting my money where my mouth was because all the time I'm, I'm preaching to, to other athletes, like do what the pros do and obviously like scale it down. <laughs> but, <laughs> sure, but, sure. <laughs> but like, you know, these folks, like they actually know what they're doing, um, you know, cause they've got so much riding on it. Um, and, and so I wanted to sort of like put myself in the position to guinea pig, like, you know, 
does does it really work? Like you know, I tell people it works, but but if I'm actually doing everything the pros are doing, like training at high altitude, taking afternoon naps, you know, getting the physical therapy, the massage, like you know, the the coached strength workouts, like you know, the mm-hmm. immaculate diet, like you know, all in. Um, yeah. like the, can I actually get better at 46 having started running when I was 11? Uh, mm-hmm. and spoiler alert, I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, something that I thought about just going over the story you just said, um, what type of mental fortitude or as you said in how bad do you want it? Your fire walking concept. Um, how did that go into when you were down in Flagstaff? Yeah. You know, I remember doing another podcast interview while I was there, like in the middle of it. And the guy doing the interview, he was a college runner. So like he, he was, I mean, you know, he was a high level, he was a better runner than I, than I ever was. But his, his, one of his first questions was like, like, man, the training must be just brutal. Um, And I thought about it. I'm like, well, I guess it's hard, but it doesn't actually feel that hard because I'm enjoying it so much. Uh, and that was really the main thing for me because, you know, the thing about, you know, especially, you know, endurance sports is that, I mean, they're painful, you know, like, mm-hmm, I yeah. mean, there's no ball, there's no teammates, like, you know, there's no scoring, like, it's just, you're just out there trying to get to the finish line and, at some point yeah. it's going to start hurting a lot, you know, if you're pushing oh, it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so they're, they're tough sports, but I mean, there's still, and it's not even masochism. There, there's something that you can just love and enjoy. And so I just felt so lucky to be there. And I knew it was, it was 13 weeks. It was one summer. That was all I got. And so, so my motivation level was so high that that's the thing about it is that a certain amount of suffering can feel two different ways depending on how bad you want it. Right. Like mm-hmm. if, if you're suffering, just put a number on it on a hundred point scale. If you're suffering at 92, 92 can be your limit if you just don't want it that bad, but 92 can feel like a cakewalk if you want it bad enough to go to 100. And like when I was in Flagstaff, I was willing to go to 100. And there were a few occasions when I did. Uh, But but by and large, yeah, I worked my butt off. But because I was so into it, um, I I was, that was, that was more salient in my experience was not, not how quote unquote brutal it was as as that other interviewer put it, but just how, much I was enjoying the, the experience and the challenge. That's amazing. That just sounds like a good time all, all around. Yeah, it really was because, you know, I mean, you know, running is not a big fan sport, but I, I am a fan of running. So, you know, in addition to someone who does it, you know, that first marathon, my father did the 1983 Boston marathon. Um, my two brothers and I, you know, the whole family went down to watch my dad run but we also got to see the pros and uh, you know, the legendary Joan Benoit who went on to win the first gold medal. Well, the, the first Olympic women's marathon, you know, it was in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. Joan Benoit American wins the gold. Well, I mean, she won that race in world record time 
And I don't think I knew who Joan Benoit was the day before, but you know, you're so impressionable at that age. And I, like, she was my hero. I mean, she was amazing. She was beating almost all the guys. I'm like, this is incredible. Yeah. Um, so like I became a yeah. runner and a fan of running almost at the same time. Um, and so that, that, that was a big part and I get it. Like not, you know, most, even most people who run two or three marathons a year can't name five pro runners, but I can. <laughs> so that was definitely <laughs> caught up with it. Like, you know, I was on a team, uh, the name of the team is Northern Arizona elite. Um, and there, there were about a dozen members and, you know, I knew who these people were before I got there. So, I mean, like, imagine, I don't know, like, you know, you, you're like a guitar player and you have some, you go to some kind of camp where the teachers are, you know, Jimmy Page and Bruce Springsteen and, you know, like mm -hmm. Jack White. Like that's, that's yeah. kind of what it was like. For. I might be exaggerating slightly, but only slightly. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't even say slightly because these people are the top of the yeah. top and that's just an amazing thing to be able to, I guess, feed off their energy and I guess be a fanboy. <laughs> yeah, but I mean the the I mean the thing that makes it a little and you know those who who choose to read the book will see it. The, the thing that makes it that just adds another dimension to it is that I am twice their age. <laughs> you know, right. I was I was forty six then. You know, these the oldest member of the team was thirty four. Most were in their twenties. The coach was thirty seven, nine years younger than me. <laughs> Like everyone, like I saw, like, cause I was all in, like, so I went to, you know, physical therapist. I saw a sports psychologist. Uh, you know, I, I did the regular, like super painful, torturous, like sports massages. Everyone, even all these ancillary people were way younger than I was. And you might actually think that that would make me feel old. It did the opposite. Like after maybe I felt old, a little, a little self-conscious at, at the beginning, but after 13 weeks, you know, because you're not looking in the mirror all day, you're looking at your milieu and everyone around me is super young. So I started to feel like, like I fit right in. Like I'm right. I'm young again. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> this, this makes me think of kind of, uh, kind of one of the Arthur boys type, type of situation. Yes. Where Arthur was running around New Zealand and, you know, he was he was in his close to his fifties at that time, but he's attracting all these Olympic hopefuls and, you know, everyone's following him around and you were kind of inversely doing a very similar thing. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a, that's a good parallel. Um, yeah. Percy Cerruti as well. The, uh, the, uh, the Australian, cause they, he and uh, Arthur Lydiard were kind of contemporaries and rivals and they both had similar, stories where they were they were sort of you know the 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 first coaching legends in, in you know in running it's funny they both kind of came from that part of the world too but um but yeah they they were both guys who kind of were late bloomers who were they were they were walking the talk you know just just like I tried to do but yeah it was a little bit uh it, so there's a parallel, but it's also inverted because it's funny, um, you know, you know, as someone who's written, written books, like I can sometimes go to a book signing, say, and sign a book for someone who's like, who will tell me I'm a huge fan, which is like always a pinch me moment. But 
when I was with this team of professional runners, I don't think a single one of them had read a single one of my books. <laughs> they weren't looking at me as any kind of guru. They're, they're just like, who's this whole slow guy? <laughs> so the parallel only goes so far. Sure, sure. <laughs> Going into this training regiment with these guys half your age, Olympic hopefuls, what was your personal goals and how were you able to keep up on those goals and did they change over time? Yeah. So, you know, um, yeah. So for, for the longest time, uh, I had a goal of running under two hours and 40 minutes for the marathon. And I got really, really close at one point. Like, so my best time was 2:41 and change. But like I, I, I just wasn't satisfied with it. You know, like these numbers, they're completely arbitrary. They don't mean anything because it, it's not the Olympics. Um, but, you know, that's the kind of what makes humans just the awesome species we are, is that we just decide we want to go to the moon. And suddenly something that doesn't really matter, it's like, well, who really cares? Like, does life depend on it? No. But it's just something that makes humans humans is that we set arbitrary goals and then we set our hearts on them. And it's really not about whether you achieve the goal or not. It's the it's the journey that pursuing that goal sends you on. Like you just experience life in a way you wouldn't if you didn't uh, set your heart on goals that were just beyond way beyond mere merely getting by. And so that was two, uh, a 239 marathon was my Olympics. And I didn't quite get there. I got close, um, but I was very injury prone. Uh, uh, so I, I could never just stay healthy long enough. To, I knew I could do it. Like I was certain I could do it. Even my times at shorter distances said that it was within my ability, but I didn't. And then suddenly, lo and behold, I'm 40 years old, 41, 42, and I start to slow down. Um, but then, you know, when I got to 45, 46, I, I was, I got, I kind of figured out how to stay healthy. And that's, that sort of explains the timing of like why I did this when I did, um, is that I was healthy. Um, and so when I went to Flagstaff, I had recently run a marathon and it was 249. So eight minutes slower than my best, but I was also nine years older and that's as close as I had come to my best since I ran that, that time. So when I arrived in Flagstaff, you know, the coach is like, well, I've never coached someone so slow. Like, what do I do with this guy? Like I had, you know, Flagstaff is at 7,000 feet. I had never trained at that altitude. So there were a lot of questions and it was tough for Ben Rosario, the coach of the team to kind of figure me out. And also I responded so well to the altitude and the training and the lifestyle that I became a moving target for me. And it took him a long time to figure me out. He would say, okay, run these times for a workout. And I would just blow them away. And I would tell him, I swear I wasn't working harder than you wanted me to. I just, the times were too slow. Um, so my goal was like, I just, I, I secretly kind of wanted to get that 239 still, but quite honestly, the person in me who knows the science of the sport as well as I do believe that was impossible. Like I truly not, not, I'm not a pessimist, but I just, I did not believe it was possible. So I don't know. I just wanted to, I, because I was writing about it, I wanted a, a happy ending. I was training for the Chicago marathon 
and I, which I actually got to run as a pro, the agent of the team pulled some strings for me, uh, which is a story unto itself. But, uh, but um, again, spoiler alert, I ended up running in 239 in Chicago at 46, nine years after I had set my, my previous nice. personal best. So like, that's like, that's, you know, yeah, if the question was amazing. like, does this pro approach to stuff work for mere mortals? Like the answer is an emphatic yes, at least, you know, it's a case study, one guy. Yeah. So for that's people incredible. at home that don't know how fast a 239 would be, that's like an average of six minutes and 10 seconds per mile at that point. So 605. very, very, yeah, that's, that's really, <laughs> that's really awesome. That's, that's gnarly. <laughs> well, yeah, it's funny. The, uh, the, uh, cause the, the coach, Ben, he, he believes in, in basing goals for the marathon on a per mile pace, not the final time. He says people get it backwards when they like, they want to break a round number, which is exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, he said, well, that's arbitrary. Like what you really want to know is like, what pace can you sustain? And on a flat course, like a sh- the Chicago marathon, you just lock in, you know, there are no Hills. Um, right. So he told me because I, you know, he was the coach, you know, even though he was nine years younger than me, I was going to do what he told me to do. And he said, like, I want you to run 605 per mile until you can't. And my, so my average pace ended up being, I think 605.005 seconds per mile. Like I, (laughs) like I did what you said, coach. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. While you were training in Flagstaff, were you able to kind of put your money where your mouth was and use the 80-20 training method? And were the other runners with you doing the same thing or something similar? Well, well, that's just it. You know, like I'm not so just, you know, for those who don't know, like that 80-20 concept, because like business people know about an 80-20 rule, like this is a slightly different one that applies to endurance sports. So the idea is that that's how the pros train is they do approximately 80% of their training at low intensity, 20% at moderate to high intensity. That's not what most recreational, even competitive recreational endurance athletes do. They're more like 50, 50. Um, and it's not that they're doing a bunch of high intensity. They're caught in what I call the moderate intensity rut. So, I mean, like I didn't just, come up with this 80-20 concept, you know, scientists studied what the top endurance athletes were doing, not just in running, but in a variety of endurance disciplines. And they found this consistent pattern. And endurance athletes, if you go back in history, uh, they've been doing it for a while, but if you go back 50, 60, 70, 80 years, that's not what they were doing. So it seems like this kind of evolutionary process of trial and error there was a convergence and, and trust me, like swimmers don't talk to runners, but they both do 80, 20. So it's, it can't be an accident that not only swimmers and runners do it, but also cyclists and triathletes and rowers and cross country skiers. It's like apparently what works now, of course, a skeptic might say, well, what works if you have elite genes and you have 30 hours a week to train might not work if you're a mere mortal. Uh, but the prospective studies, the controlled studies on mere mortals that have been done have shown that actually 80-20 works for everyone, as far as we know. Um, so when I got there to Flagstaff, 
I knew they were going to be doing 80 to it's, it's not, they don't do it consciously. Like they don't even, they don't even measure it that way, but they are doing it. Um, so I already knew that that's what I would be doing there. Um, I would just be doing like the Northern Arizona elite flavor of 80, 20. And it was a little different from, from like how I had trained myself for past marathons was a little different. It was still within kind of the, the 80, 20 range, but there was like definitely more emphasis on moderate versus high intensity. And that worked really well for me. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, I wasn't there to like, like I said, play the expert. Like I, I put myself in the hands of a coach I trusted and I really did exactly what the pros did just, you know, scale down to, you know, my limitations. I couldn't run 120 miles a week without exploding into shards. Um, but I came, I got up to 91 miles, I think in one week. Wow. Uh, and yeah, they were, it was more or less an 80, 20 approach. So within those 91 miles a week, or when you started to get to those higher, um, mileage, what did you use for coping skills that kind of got you through that wall and to where it was a little bit easier to get through the pain? You know, that, that's the thing is that, um, you know, I, I remember I got to a point, uh, I think it was one week out from the race and it was my, my, my last long run and it was just an easy 14 miler. So really nothing compared to what I've been doing the, the weeks before for a, for a long run. Um, and I remember like toward the end of that run thinking like, I know I'm going to run 239. Like it's not that I'm confident. Like I knew unless I just randomly sprained an ankle halfway through the race. Like I knew, knew it. Like I would have bet any amount of money. And it was just because I had never felt that good. Like I wasn't as young as I used to be. I couldn't necessarily even quite match the times I, I could hit in similar workouts before, but I had just never felt that dang good, you know, at that point in my preparation for a marathon and so, you know, again, like just my enthusiasm for being there made, I almost didn't even think of it as coping. Like it's, it's only when I look back on it in retrospect and see all the work I did and I think, dang, like that's a lot of hard work, but it, it really didn't feel like it going through it. A, because I was motivated and enthusiastic, but B, B just because like, you know, the specific way, I mean, you know, Ben Rosario knows what he's doing. Like, you know, I am a good coach. He's a great coach. <laughs> um, and, and just, and yeah, it was a lot of little things. Like I was taking care of my body, you know, the massages and the physical therapy and I lost nine pounds that, you know, I mean, I, I'm a skinny guy. I was a skinny guy before I even got there. Like I lost nine pounds just from, you know, the little dietary tweaks. So I just, I felt like I was aging in reverse and, uh, and so like there were only a, a couple, you know, a handful of runs. I mean, I did, I did suffer a major injury actually halfway through and I had to kind of start over. But aside from that, like I just felt pretty darn good almost all the time. Like even when 
I was doing the, like the most challenging sessions, like they weren't overwhelming to me. Like I was working hard, but I wasn't, I wasn't out of my zone. Like, or I was just fully prepared okay. for the challenge yeah. that I was being tasked with. That's awesome. That's a great mentality to have and a good way to like, when I'm listening to you, it just makes me be like, okay, now what can I do in my daily yeah. life to kind of adjust things to be a little bit more positive and I guess enjoy the little things as you get into the harder things? Yeah, it was something the, that uh, Ben said, the, the coach, um, really rang true to me. It was uh, just somewhere in the process. I spent a lot of time with him. You know, he told me, you know, I, I tr- even though I'm not much, you know, because he was 37 and not a heck of a lot older than some of the athletes he was coaching, he said, I tried to be the coach and not too much the buddy of the guys on the team. But it was a little, like he told me before I came out there, you know, when I asked him, hey, can I do this thing? He said, yes. He said, I'm going to treat you just like one of the gang. But in point of fact, I wasn't just one of the gang. I was older and slower. So I got a lot of time with Ben. And I remember him telling me at one point, uh, you know, six weeks out from a marathon, everyone wants to be on that starting line. On race morning, only a few want to still be there. And it's those few who perform well, who knock it out of the park. Uh, And that just resonated with me. Like it's, when, like if when you just want to be there, like when you genuinely in your heart want to be there, it, it it's difference making. Um, and I'm not saying that's absolutely controllable. Like motivation is very squishy um, and it's affected by a lot of things. And I don't care who you are, like you will experience, you will struggle with motivation at, at some point. But it is controllable to some degree. You know, I, as a coach all the time, I encourage athletes like, hey, you know, there, there are X's and O's to this sport. There are certain rules you have to follow to get good results. But there's also wiggle room. There's room to do things in a way that you just enjoy. Like if you could, if you could do A, B, or C, and they'll all give you equal results physically, but one of them is something you would enjoy more than, you know, if it's A, you would enjoy more than B or C and they're going to give you the same physical results, then do A, you know, make, make it as like, it's not all about like coping and uh, like putting up with suffering. It's also about having fun. Like the person who, you know, it's a false dichotomy. It's like, Oh, I either I work hard or I have fun. Like, no, like if you're motivated and you actually want to improve and perform, you'll get the best possible results if you're having the most fun. So use that wiggle room to to be good to yourself, be be nice to yourself, like pursue the sport yeah. in a way that makes it fun. So you know, so that you want to be that guy who's on the starting line. Yeah, for sure. Could you just kind of answered a question that we've been thinking about um, is how to help people that have. Um, something wrong with their bodies or a little bit are overweight, uh, nagging injuries, scoliosis, um, depression, self-esteem and that type of stuff and like how to overcome those obstacles. And I think you just answered that for us with just trying to find that happy zone within all the hard stuff. Yeah. Yeah, totally. 
you know, people can be a little too hard on their them, themselves, and they, you know, they'll they'll think, oh well, you know, I'm I'm just not motivated for this. Okay, that's fine, but I'll bet you are motivated for something. In fact, I mean, sometimes you can you can flip it around immediately, like you can. Like I'm not motivated to run today can be I'm motivated to rest today. I mean, seriously. I mean, if you do that every day, okay, you're going to get really out of shape. <laughs> but but I'm also, you know, I'm quite serious about that. Like you could it's like a, just a little bit of, you know, psychologists call it reframing. Because everyone is always motivated for something. And if you if you gen if you genuinely want to achieve a certain health or fitness related goal. Like not, it's not, it's something like your spouse said, you're fat, you need to lose weight. Okay. Well, that's not you being, <laughs> but, but if you have, if you have a goal that comes from inside you, then you're motivated for that. And, and just because you're not motivated to do it in the way, you know, a personal trainer thinks you should do it doesn't mean you couldn't be motivated to take a slightly different path toward that goal. And you need to allow yourself that freedom. Like it's okay to have fun. Like it's, you know, there's, there's more than one way to get there. And you like the psychological part is every bit as important as, as the physical and you need to attend it, attend to it and, and give yourself a degree of permission to, to have fun and not be miserable. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Great mentality. That hypes me up. Right on. Yeah, it's uh it's definitely a really freeing experience whenever anyone's starting a new project or whatever and you're you're in it for yourself and it's not for any sort of outside reasons, you know, outside pressures when you're when you're truly 100% doing something for yourself. I th- I think the mo- motivation comes naturally rather than a boss trying to micromanage you, you know, and it's something that's very freeing and inspirational. Yes. I mean, I don't think there are many people out there if any who are incapable of being highly motivated for something. Right? You know, it's not like yeah. It's not like the motivation bone is just broken in in a person that like you can just be not into doing whatever it is you think you got to do. So it can become sometimes you have to experiment a bit. Um, You see this like with with diet all the time, you know, people who are overweight for a long time and they try different diets and yeah, you know, they, they lose a bunch of weight, but they just gain it right back. And then suddenly something clicks, right? Right. And it's always about like, a, it's almost like a lock and key phenomenon. Like it's like right approach, right time. Um, and sometimes that can take a little experimentation, a little bit of just getting to know yourself. Um, but too many people are looking for like the answer, you know, that they want, you know, they want a key that fits every lock, like a master key. And I don't think that really exists. And yes, that puts a little bit of onus on you, you know, mm-hmm. to, to experiment. But I think it's also freeing if you have the right mentality. It's like, you know, guess what? There's, there, yes, there's no, there's no answer for, there's no one answer for everyone, but there is an answer for everyone. You know, you just may, you may get lucky and find it on day one. 
but you know you may have to play around a bit before you find you know the the right fit well matt i had a question um about in one of the individuals that you went over in how bad do you want it um and that was uh willie yes uh willie stewart yes one arm um, willie stewart his 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 story um resonated with me a lot uh sean's a rugby player i wrestled until uh, my junior year of high school um when i hurt my knee so like just him being able to um and sean i don't know if you know i don't know if i explained it fully but uh he lost his hand working for his brother um who was a contractor doing roofing or some kind of construction lost his hand completely severed Mm -hmm. and he went on to be uh, one of the best rugby players for the same league and went off to run marathons and try was a triathlete as well. Um, Something that I always, I wondered when you got to speak with him or when you were doing your research about him, um, what resonated with you? What was, what, what, spoke to you about him that was so amazing well i mean you know willie is like someone you know as an interviewer you ask one question and then 45 minutes later he's done answering and the interview is done like you know but you know but he just has a spark and it's not hard to see but you know he did he struggled for a long time it just goes to show you like it doesn't matter who you are if, and he didn't just lose his hand. He, he lost most of uh, his arm in that, in that accident. Okay. Uh, and he was 18 years old. Um, and that's rough. I mean, he was, he was a very high level athlete, like state champion wrestler. Um, and he struggled. I mean, he went into a a very dark place and it lasted for, you know, a period of time, but, you know, he had the wherewithal to climb out of it and actually, yeah, become a better athlete with, with one arm than he had ever been with two. But you see that in him. I mean, you know, when you hear him talk about the dark period, you understand like, why he was in that place. I mean, you, you put yourself in his shoes, right? You know, what if exactly the same thing happened to me at at the same age, it would have been so much. I mean, he even talks about, I mean, think about it when you're 18, you're full of hormones. You're like, as a guy, you're all about girls. And he just think about that one dimension of it. Like, you know, he, he didn't think he would ever have a girlfriend again. Like just that one, forget about the athletics. Like, that's tough. You know, it's, it's just so much to process. Um, but yeah, he did come out the other side of it in a big way. And yeah, if you talk to him, you, you just see that, um, you know, he just has, he has a, a kind of a a fire in inside him. Um, and so many people, you know, who, you know, I love comeback stories and, you know, that, that particular book is full of them. Uh, and you see that again and again in, in the people who achieve just amazing comebacks after terrible setbacks of one kind or another. Um, you know, it's it's not all just, it's you know, it's not something that you can entirely 
achieve through therapy or reading a good self-help book. There, there, there has to be something inside you that you can access, you know, to, to, to achieve a, a comeback like that. And that's part of the fun for me. Just like, I enjoy, you know, writing these books and, and inspiring, you know, people with them, but it's also just fun to do those interviews actually to get to, for sure. yeah, to get to interact with those people and get to know them because like, it's almost infectious, you know, cause you're, you're not just, it's one thing to read that chapter and be like, that guy's awesome. It's, it's another to, to actually know that guy, like to have his phone number and yeah. email address and like be able to just feel that fire th- that he had inside him. But th- you see that it's recurrent again and again and again, the people who achieve the most remarkable comebacks, you know, they, they, they have a spark. Yeah, and I think one of my favorite concepts that you came up with um, that you talked about was with uh, Suri Lundy and choking and letting go of the concept of I want to win no matter what with, okay, I'm just going to go out and do a try and see how it goes and have a good time. Um, And the way that she transitioned from focusing so much on the win and then doing her stuff with uh, Brett Sutton just hyped me up. Cause I was like, Oh, I wish I could have spoke with her. Right. I wish I could have spoke <laughs> with Brett Sutton. Cause they just seem like amazing people whose focus isn't about just to win, to win, but it's to enjoy what you're doing as you get going. Yeah. I mean, it, it it's a little, it's, it's so funny how like it's a little counterintuitive because I coach, um, uh, you know, recreational athletes, competitive recreational athletes, but I learn from elite athletes and some of the qualities that maybe a non-athlete would expect to see in the elites and not in the more recreational ones. They're actually the opposite of that. Like the, the, like the serious recreational athletes are, are more likely to be a little uptight <laughs> and, and, and the elites are actually a little more likely to be ch- kind of chill. Um, and, and yeah. Siri Lindley, she, she was not chill enough. Uh, and that's what she yeah. kind of had, she had to learn. And that you, you see it again and again in, in like true champion athletes. It's a process focus. Like, Yes, they absolutely want to win, but they they just they set that goal and then they forget about it and then they're all about the process. Like that that's how you win. And if if you're not if you don't have the genes to win, it's still how you get the most out of yourself. It's and that's the path that Siri went down even though she was an elite athlete. Um is, you know, she became too caught up in like, if I don't win or I have to feel, I have to win to feel good about myself. Like Mm, that's a dead end. Um, that's, that is a recipe for choking. Um, because then you become, you know, hyper self-conscious. Like you see that it's become a cliche, but there's something to it when, you know, maybe the Super Bowl is about to happen and you've got, you know, beat reporters who are spending time with, you know, team A and team B before, before the big game. 
and one of them might report like, oh, you know, team A, and maybe they're the ones that have been there before. They won it the year before or two years before. They're like, they're loose. They'll say like, I was with the team, you know, and they're like, you know, their, their last practice and they seemed very loose. And that's a good thing. You know, like, do they, are they loose because they don't care? No, they're, they're, they're loose because they've stopped thinking. They've, they're not thinking about winning. They're thinking about playing well. Um, yeah. And there's, there's so much to that. Just being process focused and think and knowing you're good, whether you succeed or fail. That's, that's yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. For, for Brad and I, we're really big into mountain biking and there's kind of a culture that has that kind of goes along with that kind of mindset where it's all about just getting out there and just sending it. And so that's something that's been able to help me in my life because usually I'm a very hyper competitive person. And a lot of times I'm just thinking so much about this internal battle with myself and I'm just beating myself up just because of these put downs and stuff like that. But when I'm actually thinking about the process and just doing it, that's something that's very empowering and can uh, provide so much better results. Yeah. Yeah. It's not either or like you can want to win or you can want to achieve your best. And at the same time, not hold that goal too tightly and just sort of forget about it and immerse yourself in the process because like, like truly that is how you get the most out of yourself. And you hear it again and again, and again, like if you talk to the people who have won gold medals, like that is what they do. Um, and again, like it's a little bit surprising to be, you know, to maybe, maybe even folks like you who think like, Oh no, you have to obsess on the result. Like, no, you don't. <laughs> In fact, you shouldn't like, and it, yeah, it, yeah. It doesn't mean you don't you don't have you have to let go of caring. You can care, and then put it out of mind. There was that an infomercial with some cooking impl implement where the guy's tagline was "Set it and forget it." Like, I can't remember what that was. What it, what he was selling on that in infomercial, but I love it because it applies to exactly the right attitude toward goals. Set it and then forget it, and focus on the process. Yeah, that's awesome. Um. Well, Matt, is there anything else that you would like to talk about? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about it a little bit. Check it out. Uh, that's great. And, um, you know, I will say just to come full circle that, you know, having gone through the, the illness I went through, like having gone through the experience with those, you know, just being on a team of professional runners in that those 13 weeks of, you know, fantasy fulfillment, you know, I came home with a lot uh, and, and actually just being exposed to the mindset and the coping skills of those elite athletes helped me get through what kind of everyone's going through right now. Like there's, there's just a pro way of dealing with any kind of difficulty. It, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have to be the challenge of trying to get to the Olympics. It can be something like having COVID-19 or having lost your job because of, of a pandemic. Uh, so I think, you know, there's some, there's something in the book for everyone. So you don't have to be like as fanatical yeah. a runner as I am to, to get something out of it. Right. So for everyone out there that is interested, you know, there's a lot of, there's a plethora of information that Matt has 
written and stuff. But if you're particularly interested in his new book, Running the Dream, it's going to be coming out on May 5th. Is that correct, Matt? Yeah, which happens to be my birthday. Nice. <laughs> Happy upcoming birthday. Thank you. Happy early birthday. <laughs> and can people pick these up at their local bookstores or where, where all can they find it? Right now, they might, <laughs> some might be open. Yeah. But yeah, any anywhere books are still sold. And I don't know about other people, but I'm reading more uh the way things are right now but i'm just you know yeah buying everything online but yeah every, it's uh yeah it's a major publisher so wherever you normally get your books you can you can get this one yeah and as for in in, in my opinion awesome. if you guys can and you have a local independent bookstore i would say hit hit them up and see if they can order the book for you if it, they don't have it in stock on day one because I'm sure they would very, very much appreciate the business. Amen. I think Amazon's, I think Amazon's gonna be fine by the end of this. But I, th- I think your local bookstore could definitely use the help a lot more. So definitely, yeah. definitely thank, see if they're. Thank you for saying that. I should have myself. Yes, very much so. Uh, is there any other social media plugs that you have, Matt? Yeah. So you know, my personal website is mattfitzgerald.org. Um, I'm more of a Twitter guy than an Instagram guy. I'm on both. But uh, my Twitter handle is at MattFitWriter. I'm also on Facebook, but I've got I'm, I've maxed out my friend limit there. Soon. Gotcha. <laughs> Get on the waiting list, I guess. <laughs> cool. Awesome. Well, thank you, Matt, so much for being with us. Um, it's been a very enlightening hour, and. It's been awesome to talk about your career and um, things that you've talked about in your books because they definitely, I'm a big fan. I really appreciate you and the way that you talk about psychology. Um, I have a degree in psychology and sociology. So anytime that people start talking about social interaction and the way that um, the audience and group mentalities come together, I always get hyped. And I just Sweet. really, yeah, I really enjoyed talking to you guys. To us. Yeah. Thank you again so much, Matt. This this was really a, a super wonderful and inspiring opportunity. So yeah, just thank you. Thank you from, from the bottom of our hearts and to everyone out there listening. I, I hope, I hope that you guys are inspired to go out there and try something new. And um, like Matt said, in all of his books, there's something to learn from everybody. So please go out there, check out Matt's, Matt's books and let us, let us know what you think. Let, let Matt know what, what, what you gained from reading his, his books. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, guys. Uh, Brad, do you want to send send us off? Well, you guys know where to follow us. You know our things. Once again, um, we are Release the Adventure. And we're a podcast about getting outside and doing awesome things. Thank you guys so much for being here. <laughs>